to Inside the Castle, the podcast that goes behind castle doors to have real conversations with real people about solving the nation's toughest challenges. I'm one of your hosts for today, Courtney Emmerich. And I'm Donnell Rice. Today we are talking with Lily Cheshire in honor of Holocaust Days of Remembrance. Thank you for joining us today. My pleasure. We wanted to talk with you today, Lily, as part of a Holocaust Days of Remembrance. We've hosted several podcasts on diversity, equity, and inclusion, and it's important that we have these conversations to continue to gain perspectives so we can understand the challenges that people face. We wanted to talk with you today about your family's history with the Holocaust so you could share their story. Could you tell us about your family and um, some of the conditions that they experienced during the Holocaust? Well, I'll start by letting you know that um, I was born in Salzburg, Austria in 1948. Both of my parents were Holocaust survivors. Um, my father lost his entire family in the Holocaust. My mother had a sister who survived. My family came to the United States in 1950. We came as part of uh, the Hebrew Immigrant Aid Society, highest resettled us to the United States. My aunt, my mother's sister, had um, come a year or two earlier because her husband had a relative that had come to the States in the 1930s. So he was their sponsor, and uh, we were sponsored by the by Hyas. My, both of my parents were from uh, Ludge, Poland. They did not know each other growing up. My father was 11 years older than my mother. And um, they were both survivors of the Ludge ghetto. Uh, the Germans had renamed the uh, Ludge ghetto Littmannstadt. It was the habit of the Germans where they would go into a Polish city and they would uh, give it a German name. So it was the largest ghetto of the whole series of uh, ghettos in Poland. And uh, it was primarily a working ghetto. The leader of the ghetto was a man named Heimrum Kakowski, and his mission was to provide the Germans with munitions, supplies, clothing, anything they needed to uh, promote the war effort. In addition to that, he was a very controversial character because as the Germans came in and organized ghetto systems, there were two kinds of, uh, there were the ghettos where the Jews were rounded up, taken from their homes throughout Europe, and then transferred to the ghettos, which were, um, the word ghetto actually comes from uh, the Venetian Italian word ghetto, the very first ghetto ever set up was in Venice, Italy, I believe in the 15 or 1600s, where they rounded up Jews and they wanted them to live in one area of the city. And that's basically what the um, Nazis did with different areas all over Europe, where they rounded up Jews from different parts of Europe, transported them by trains to these communities where they lived in horrible conditions, very limited food, and were, were providing work for the, the Nazi army. Then there were extermin work camps and extermination camps. Many people have heard of Auschwitz. Um, both of my parents um, had been through Auschwitz. My mother um, stayed in Auschwitz until the end of the war. And that was a slave labor camp as opposed to an and an extermination camp. Extermination camps were those places where there was nothing but a place to kill people, where uh, Jews were transported, murdered there, 
their bodies were burned in the crematoria and gas ovens, and uh, that was the only purpose of those types of camps. A name that viewers might have, or listeners might have heard would have been like Treblinka. Uh, that was an extermination camp. Auschwitz did both extermination and slave labor. Bergen-Belsen, another uh, labor camp, but they were throughout Europe. So the Ludge ghetto, uh, getting back to the Ludge ghetto, that was um, a huge ghetto where people worked. And from there, they were transported to either a slave labor camp like Auschwitz or to extermination. The Nazis um, determined, they did liquidations where they would transport people out of these camps. On my mother's side, there were just the two girls. It was my mother and her sister. And uh, their father had died just early in 1939. Uh, Germany invaded Poland on September 1st of 1939, and their father had died that previous spring. She thinks it was prostate cancer. She, my mother never really knew uh, exactly. She was uh, about 17 years old then because she was born in 1922. And uh, so as the uh, Nazis closed in on Ludge, which is a actually the second largest city in Poland next to Warsaw, a big industrial city, uh, uh, primarily in textiles. They were rounded up and moved out of their house into uh, the ghetto area, which was the poorest area of the city. They uh, lived uh, in lodgings with many different families. You were just put into buildings, as many people in a room, and then they started to give you rations and put you to work. So my mother, as a, a young girl, was um, put to sewing. She didn't know how to sew, but she learned how to sew, making wooden shoes um, and uh, supplies, uh, army uniforms for the German army. Her sister worked in a hospital. There were hospitals there. But I'm um, coming back to Heimerkowski. The why he was so controversial is because as a leader, he was a Jewish man, as the leader of the Ludge Ghetto, it was his determination who should be sent to transports to the death camps. And um, some Jews naturally blamed him for sending their family members out. His feeling was that as long as he could keep working and keep the uh, ghetto supplying the Nazis was what they needed, he could save people by that, because if they needed your labor, they would keep you alive. He became um, hated by some people, and other people were thankful for him for giving them jobs to keep to keep them alive. So my uh, mother uh, and her mother and her sister, they were at one of the last transports out of the camp. Um, I believe it was in August of 44, where they were uh, transferred to Auschwitz. When they uh, came to Auschwitz, my mother and um, her sister were separated from their mother. Their mother was considered old. She was in her late 40s already, but after years of starvation in the ghetto, she was emaciated. She was immediately um, sent to the, to the gas chambers. My mother and her sister were separated, and they were on work details. And I'll come back to how they got out later. Um, I'll switch over to my father's family. My father was one of four children. His father was... He was always a little vague about it. But in the, um, I think he basically uh, dealt in like firewood lumber for uh, people, you know, for their stoves and their heating. My father was kind of a savvy guy. He had uh, one brother that escaped with the partisans, which he assumed he was later killed. 
Uh, his sister, he was one of, he was younger. His uh, other siblings, uh, sister was married and left with their husband. And one um, sibling, his sister that was immediately over, older than him, had a child and her husband had been killed early on. And so he was left in charge of his, um, and his father was taken away. He was left in charge, the only one in charge of his sister, the little girl uh, who's a few years old, and his mother. He, as I said, was very savvy, so he kind of knew which areas to his sources was going to be liquidated, who was going to be sent out of transports either to Auschwitz or to uh, the death camps. And so he said he used to move them. If he knew that they were going to liquidate a certain area of the ghetto, he would move them to another area until the very end uh, when there was no place to go anymore and they liquidated the entire ghetto. And then his mother and his sister and the baby, the little girl, were taken away and murdered. And he was left in the cleanup crew of the ghetto before he was sent to Auschwitz. My father um, worked in a number of different jobs in different labor camps after Auschwitz. Um, he was uh, liberated at Regensburg, Germany. And uh, my mother was in Auschwitz until the end of the war. And she was then at the very end when the Nazis knew that um, the end of the war was coming. The um, American and British were coming from one side. The Russians were coming from the end. They uh, had a death march. The Nazis did not want to give up any of their prisoners, so they marched all the prisoners out towards the east to get them away from the advancing armies. And then she was liberated by the Russians somewhere in Poland where they were marched on this death march. And then wow. there's the, the story of how they met after the war, <laughs> but that's a whole other story. But that's basically a, a very, very brief summary of, of their wartime experiences. So my father's family was all killed. And, you know, as, as young people, I have one sister, uh, you know, my sister and I always felt, well, there's got to be someone that survived. How do you know everyone was killed? You know, even um, at my advanced age now, I still think, you know, there's got to be someone out there. I've got to have some relative out there because... We didn't have grandparents. We didn't have an extended family. We didn't have any cousins. Um, but there's got to be someone there. But my father was adamant that no one survived. And um, I'm going to put this name out there because you never know where, who your broadcast audience may be. Our last name was Latarus, L-A-T-A-R-U-S. There's got to be someone. So if anyone knows that name, please contact me. And I still feel there's someone out there, but we have never found any any relatives. Um, my mother um, found her sister after the war, after you know liberation. They uh, had some relatives that had gone to Israel in the late 30s, so they had some family there. But other than that, um, we didn't have any surviving relatives. Wow! 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 Uh, you know that was. I mean, just the stress behind having to to move uh, the family uh, and, and all that. I, well, what did your family do to find strength to survive the Holocaust? You know, I have – it's a very good question, and I've interviewed um, – I was part of a project called Transfer of Memory by the Jewish Community Relations Council of Minnesota and the Dakotas. So I interviewed a lot of Holocaust survivors because I wrote up their stories. And the story that I 
heard over and over again from all the people I interviewed over 40, and uh, my parents and her and their friends, is that it was luck. I think luck had a great deal to do with it, but I think if you look at the age of survivors, if you were in that late teen to early 20, 30, maybe age group, you were uh, stronger in that age group. Uh, the, the, the Nazis did not let children survive. Children could not survive in the concentration camp settings. They, they killed them. They, if you were older, over 40, late 30s, 40s, and you had been starving for years already in a ghetto, by the time you got to the concentration camp, you, you didn't have it to survive anymore. Some people believed in God. Some people felt God had abandoned them. But there had to be a, a certain inner strength that, that this too will end. And um, also the ability to be lucky to be lucky that, you know, you, you got picked to go to the right line, not the left line when people were going to the crematorium. People were told to pinch their cheeks so they looked healthier, stand up straighter. Just the ability not to give up for, for whatever reason, but luck had a lot to do with it. Wow, thank you for sharing these experiences. What, what do you think the challenges were for your family members after liberation? See, my father was liberated uh, in Germany, and he took up with a group of men, I mean, this gang, if you want to call them, you know, when they, when they were liberated, they were skeletons. They didn't have any family. They knew they didn't have any family or, anymore. Um, what I, I frequently have, um, thought of Europe at the end of World War II as this bowl of humanity that kind of got tossed in the air and people scattered, everything was scattered. So it was this world of transition where people were, you know, you were from Poland, you, were, you ended up in Germany or you ended up in Russia or who knows where. So you had to scramble to see if anyone was alive anymore. The Red Cross, um, highest, they uh, would post listings of people that survived so that you, you could try to find a relative. There were um, uh, resettlement camps, uh, refugee camps set up all over Europe where people could could go and get a meal and people that were uh, hospitals, you know, the Americans and the British uh, did tremendous work in setting up hospitals and helping people recover from their experiences. At, and so um, my mother, when she was uh, liberated, found her way back to Ludge, found out that her sister had survived, and her sister was in Mauthausen, had survived Mauthausen, which was in northern Austria. So then she began the trek to try to find her sister, and it was trains, trucks, and walking basically across Europe, however she could get there she started tracking her way back. And she then found out that there was a man who was her, this is a complicated part of the story if you follow me here. So uh, my mother's mother, which would have been my grandmother, was one of eight children. Their mother was the oldest, but there were younger siblings. That was the family that had gone to Palestine or Israel in the 30s. The youngest of the sister had been 
murdered and her child had been murdered, but her husband had survived. And this man, his name is Henry, he, she found he was living in um, Laufen, Germany, very southern Germany, south of Munich, right on the Austrian border. She, that was the only person that she found that um, might help her to get to her sister. So she made the trek to Laufen, and when she got there, she, she said she, she had rags. She was wearing rags, and there, were, there was a bunch of men living in a house that was get, that part of uh, Germany had been uh, liberated by the Americans. They were living in a house that some German uh, officers had left, and the Americans gave this whole group of men that had been liberated together in this house to live in. So when she went to visit this man who was her uncle through marriage, um, she, didn't, she didn't have any clothes to wear, but she knew how to sew because, you know, she worked in the camp sewing. And so she took down curtains and made herself a dress to put on. And um, they helped her get across the border to make her way to, um, to Linsk. Uh, Mauthausen was outside Linsk, Austria. And so she met this man there. And um, she kind of, they kind of established a relationship. So she said once she found her sister, she was going to come back to them. So uh, my mother went to uh, Linsk, found her sister there. They were reunited, happily reunited. And the two of them traveled back, because they didn't have anyone else, traveled back to this uncle of theirs uh, in uh, Laufen. And um, it turned out this man, my mother later married, was my father. And the uncle that was had been married to their aunt married my aunt so these two men then one became my father one became my uncle and they stayed in Laufen until my aunt and her husband came in um, to the United States and uh, in 47 I believe and or 40 late 46 to 47 and we seven we came in 1950 to the United States it's a, con it's a complex story. I don't know if you followed that all. <laughs> now, you know what? You, you made me think of Hurricane Katrina. Uh, I, as a matter of fact, I was <laughs> I was in that. My family and I were in that. And, and when you were telling me about the uh, the refugees and, and the different camps and all that, it immediately made me think of that. But I'm just thinking, man, how much tougher that that you know that had to be uh, for the people that were going through that. So let me ask you this. So how did your family adjust to normal life or whatever, some semblance of normal life after the Holocaust? My parents never talked a lot about their experiences. Um, if you ask my sister, and, and I will say for myself also, you always knew that they had been through some very tragic situation. For one thing, as a child growing up, I didn't have an extended family. I had my, my aunt and uncle and, and her two children, but I didn't have anyone else. The, my schoolmates and friends, they had grandparents and aunts and uncles and all these big families, and we didn't have anyone else. My parents had heavy uh, European accents. All of their friends of the new community that they made when they were here in Minneapolis were also survivors. Uh, families of survivors. So our social circle became the other families who were in a situation like, like ours. So when the adults would get together, they would talk among themselves, but they didn't really directly uh, speak to us about their experiences. 
it's very common for people to suffer from depression after traumatic incidents like this. And my mother did suffer from depression later in life. And I think it was a very, you know, things hit you differently at different stages. And when we were young and we were growing up, she was very involved in our school and in the neighborhood and in all these activities. And it, she wanted our lives to be just like everybody else. She wanted us to be and them to be an American family and do things that American families did. We would go up in northern Minnesota for our vacations in Brainerd, and those of you that are in Minnesota, you know it's a big, you know, the Brainerd Lakes area. We would go for vacations. We would, you know, she wanted us to be an American family, so they put that behind them. But growing up, I mean, we always knew, whether they told us directly or not what had happened to them, we knew, we knew. It was not until both my sister and I had brought home young men that would eventually be our husbands that they started asking, the gentlemen started asking our parents questions. They were both very interested in the stories about, you know, my parents. And it was easier for particularly my father to talk to them and um, tell them about their experiences rather than tell their children directly. I don't think they wanted to burden us with the horrors that they had been through. It was just too painful. They came to the States. They were ready to start a new. My parents were optimistic, enthusiastic, and they just were, they were, they were ready to start a new life. This was their choice and they made it and they were starting new. And it wasn't until the later years when they were able to tell stories to other people indirectly, you know, we're listening. As I'm listening to your stories about your parents and um, wanting to pursue a normal Minnesota life, how do you think that sharing their stories later in life helped them to overcome adversity? And then, how do you relate that to some of the more modern-day hate crimes that we see across the country today? My mother used to go and talk to school groups, too. Um, she would be invited in. And, you know, now there's a very uh, established program of uh, speakers going out to schools. But my mother used to go to, uh, you know, her grandkids and speak to the students about what her experiences had been. Uh, you know, my father died in 1988, so he, did, he, you know, he was working anyway all the years, so he didn't really uh, do that. But my mother, my mother used to do that. I mean, I can only speak from my vantage point. And I'll say this is kind of another aside. So during my career, I was a, a teacher, and I worked with uh, English as a second language students. And the years when I used to work, um, I used to do interviewing, intake interviewing with students. And it was during the years when we had a big influence of Vietnamese uh, immigrants into the United States. And so as part of my interviewing, I would ask the question just for two purposes. I would try to assess, get information from them and also to assess their ability um, to understand and speak English. And uh, one of the questions I always asked was, what did you do in your country? And uh, I would very frequently get the answer, from, particularly from the Vietnamese, before the war, I was a doctor, I was a shopkeeper, I was a teacher. After the war, it's always, I was a farmer. And I very much related to that. 
because it also took me back to that, the world in turmoil, how the world was upside down, what war does to people, uh, how it changes you totally, and how you have to adapt to a new life. And I, I kind of always felt that very close relationship with these people that I asked that question to because I knew that that was what happened to my parents too. Before the war, you had you were a teenager, you were going to school, you had hopes and desires, and then after the war, you were homeless, and you didn't know where you were going to put your head down. And so I, I related to that. I feel extremely distressed personally when I see what's going on in this country today, the hate that is there, the uh, lack of understanding, the inability to relate to other people as human beings, it's very, very distressing to me. And I know um, from seeing what happened before in another part of the world and what has, it isn't, it isn't World War II and now today, if you look back, it's happened over and over and over again. And uh, th this hate, this, this distrust of people that don't look like us or don't speak like us or um, are different, it's, it's extremely distressing. And particularly in the past several years, the language, the hate, the animosity that we see in this country is so distressing because you can see it starting over again. I mean, the motto of Holocaust survivors is never again. Well, we would hope that we would say never again, but it is happening again. And um, it's, it's very, very distressing to me. Do you, do you feel like we're going backwards? Does it seem like that to you? To me it does, yeah. Yeah, it's like we don't learn. I mean, can't people learn? I mean, I mean, World War II was I mean, over, you know, there were six million Jews killed, but there were many more million people killed. And why? Um, because we didn't like something about someone? I mean, I, I don't think we've learned, I'm going to say never again, but I don't think we've learned the lessons from history. I will say this, uh, one of the things that I tell people all the time, racism, bigotry uh, is a learned behavior. You know, babies don't come out the womb uh, hating, you know, somebody because they don't look a certain way or because they don't talk a certain way and all that. And I, I, I know how you feel I, as an African-American man. I, I know, you know, I, I know what that feels like. The, the things that your family had to endure and all that. And, and just, you know, listening to you today, you know, it, it, on, on one hand, I'm, I'm so proud of you because uh, you did not let that stop you. you. You were still able to do the things, the great things that you've done. But, but at the same time, it really hurts me because, you know, I, I live in a, a so-called better time, at least uh, people would think that we that we do. And you know, I think back on just some of the things that you said, and I'm like, man, you know what? I, I don't know if we've really uh, uh, have evolved as much as I felt like we needed to evolve. You know, so I, uh, it's something that Courtney and I we talk about all the time. We have our little conversations and stuff, and I'm. I'm going to hush because uh, Courtney's got that look on her face like she wants to say something, but uh, but I really do appreciate you sharing that with us. 
Thanks, Danelle. Mm-hmm. Yeah, as 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 I've been listening um, to Lily talk and share her family story, there's anybody who's experienced trauma knows that um, that those experiences help you to have empathy, like you said, for others. And you talked about that empathy is such an important piece in making sure that these sorts of hate crimes don't um, continue to happen. So how do we encourage others to have that empathy? And what, what would you like your family's legacy to be? Well, that's a big question. I think uh, education is very important. I think when people meet other people on a one-to-one basis, and get to know them, I think that breaks down a lot of barriers. There are so many barriers that people put up, but when you get to know one another, I think that's that that brings down those barriers. I and my family, uh, my my children and um, grandchildren, I hope that we can be emissaries by telling the stories of the past and hopefully people will learn the mistakes of the past and can um, better understand people uh, so that they can to set good examples. You set good examples for your family and you want them to uh, go out and set good examples and to work for um, justice and to work for peace and to work for understanding. Thank you, Lily. You know, you mentioned earlier about wanting to locate family members or anyone (laughs) that might know of of your family last name. Is there a website or is there a system in place where survivors can go today to try to locate their loved ones that may have survived the Holocaust? Yes, well, that's interesting. So. in Israel, there is an institution called Yad Vashem, and it is the Holocaust Memorial. They have an extensive archives and libraries, and they do searches. There's also the U.S. Holocaust Museum, where people give testimony so that they can, um, do, people can do research to that. There's all kinds of genealogical societies. Um, I have been to Poland twice. The first time I went back to Poland, I was with my mother and my sister. My mother very much wanted to go back to Poland and kind of see the place where she grew up. And my father, when he was alive, said he'd never set foot in Poland again. Um, so, I think it was 1997, my um, mother took my sister and I, and uh, we went back. We took a little a jaunt back to to Europe, and we went to Poland, and then we went to Large, and she took us to see um, where she grew up, and uh, we made a visit to Auschwitz at that time. And uh, it was a very interesting trip because um, when we were, we went to, my mother had the, the building that she had lived in was a big apartment building when she was growing up before the war. And um, yet you still could see little anti-Semitic um, graffiti on the walls of the building there, even then in the 90s. And then we went to Auschwitz. And we took a tour there. It was 
I videotaped that trip because we have since made um, a video um, called Esther's Story. It's on um, the JCRC website. Anyone can look at, at that video, and it's my, my mother is in it. Uh, we did the video after my mother had died, but we used the videotape of our, our trip to Poland along with her testimony from the Shoah Foundation. Steven Spielberg set up the Shoah Foundation at um, University of Southern California in order to collect as many testimonies of Holocaust survivors as possible. I don't know what year it was set up. So they trained interviewers all around the world to collect interviews. And though my mother was interviewed for that, and there, there were excerpts uh, in, in this video too. It's a 15-minute video, and it's available on um, the JCRC website. Sorry, I don't know exactly, but it's a Minnesota Jewish Community Relations Council of Minnesota and the Dakotas. If you Google that, there is uh, Holocaust Education, and there are four videos there, as long as well as this transfer uh, a memory exhibit where um, they are the uh, pictures of Holocaust survivors in Minnesota, as well as the excerpts of the stories which I wrote. So we did this video, and my mother, when we got back to Poland and we were there, she was like a kid again. She remembered, everything came back to her. Her Polish came back to her. It was just very exciting to her. And when we went to Auschwitz, she, everything came back. She started pointing things out and telling the story. And as I took this video, I tried to cut out the other, because we had this small group that we were with, but here was this actual survivor that was there, and it was like a magnet. All these people from around kept crowding us to hear her tell her story. It wasn't a tour guide. This is a person that had been there that was telling this story. So um, I don't know how I got on that tangent, but um, it was very, it was a very moving experience. Oh, I know. So then you asked me uh, for places to look. So the second time I was, so my husband did not go on that trip. And then we went back, to, I went back to Poland with my husband and we went on a tour. And there is a um, archive in Warsaw that documents survivors. It's, it's an unusual, my father's name is a very unusual name and yet we didn't really come up with something. I think you have to hire someone that can, that really is, can speak Polish, that can really be there and dig into it. I've never had the um, bandwidth, shall I say, to, to do it. I'm curious. I haven't had the mental capacity to sit down and, and really, really dig, dig into it. I need um, Louis Gates to put me on uh, finding your roots and <laughs> let them do all the work. I'm so glad that you talked about your family's trip back to Europe and back to Poland. You know, I had the opportunity um, when I was in college to travel a little bit, and uh, one of the places I visited was Dachau. And I was mm -hmm. quite shocked and surprised at the amount of denial that was still out there at the actual uh, concentration camp, as well as from locals when you would talk with just citizens and everyday people um, walking around as a tourist trying to learn more about history. Did you experience any of that sort of denial from 
anyone that was in the Poland area when you went back? You know, we really didn't speak to anyone uh, around. When we were in Poland, we really didn't speak to people about that other than at the uh, campsite itself um, in, on that first trip. We, you know, we were, we were tourists, we were touring. However, when we got to Auschwitz, no, I, we did not experience that at all. In fact, the Polish government, it, I think that, that Auschwitz might be one of the biggest tourist sites in Poland. And from the time I was there in 97, I'm trying to think what year I was there with my husband, I don't know, maybe eight, nine years ago now, um, it was a good time later, it's even gotten bigger as far as the number of tours and the number of people they take through there. They are, they were not at least, I don't know what it's like today, but no, there was no denying what went, what happened there. I think um, the Poles like to blame the Germans. You know, the one thing that I think I didn't understand and maybe other people don't understand is um, um, the Poles put up a big resistance to uh, the Germans, too, because the Germans, the, the invasion of Poland happened very fast and very easily. They just basically walked in 19, September 1939. They just took over Poland. Warsaw held out for quite a time, and the people of Warsaw, the Polish people of Warsaw, survived a very difficult siege where um, they were not getting the help, the Allied help they needed to save their city, and, and it was just bombed to smithereens. Warsaw was bombed to smithereens. There were two uprisings. One was the Warsaw Uprising, which was the general uprising of the people of Warsaw, and then there was the Jewish ghetto uprising in Warsaw, where um, it was one of the few places where the Jews fought back. Uh, and, and that was the, the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising. But the Poles suffered tremendously under the Nazi regime also. And so I think that is one of the things that they focus on uh, in Auschwitz is, um, you know, there's the death camp. But, but it, it's also looking at how the Polish people suffered under the Nazi regime. And I tried to make a distinction between the Nazis and the Germans because the German people today, from what I have garnered, and it's very limited, is one country that has taken great responsibility for the sins of their fathers. And they really do a lot of Holocaust education in the schools. They're very aware of what happened in World War II. I don't know that all the other European countries have taken as much responsibility for their collaboration with the Nazis as uh, the people of Germany have. My son, uh, my oldest son at one time was a uh, former uh, representative, Martin Sabo, in Washington, D.C. And uh, what he had done a couple of times was take a group, he used to sometimes take people through the Capitol if they contacted the, the, uh, the congressman that they wanted a tour. And I remember him telling me a story once about how he had a group of German students from Germany coming and um, they were so interested to find out that he was a grandson of a Holocaust survivor, and they were they knew about it, and they were interested about it, and they were not um, trying to hide what had happened in Germany. I, I can't say that that would be true of, of the Poles or the Czechs or a lot of the other um, countries, you know, Lithuanians, Latvians, all that, but the Germans have taken responsibility for for what happened 
in the war. And so that's why I like personally when I talk about it to make a distinction between the Nazis and the German people, because I don't think that all German people were Nazis, and but the ones that were Nazis were the perpetrators. Thank you so much for clarifying that information and for sharing all of the lessons learned that you have been able to discover through tracing your family's history. And um, I'm going to hand it back over to Danelle. I think he has a question here. Don't want to take it over. Well, actually, not so much a question. I just, you know, really uh, just kind of just want to say thank you uh, uh, just for sharing all that uh, important insight uh, uh, about your family and the challenges that they faced. But I'm, I'm curious if there, you know, is there anything that you would like to tell people, um, uh, something else that maybe they should know as far as uh, the, the Holocaust is concerned? And you know what, I'm just wondering, because when I, when I was in school, I don't remember a bunch of education about the Holocaust. I don't know if that's something that they push in school today, that's part of the syllabus or, or, or whatever. Um, I, I'm just curious, do you think that that's something that they need to uh, maybe uh, uh, give more emphasis to, you think, Ms. Lilly? Well, you know what, I think there's a lot of parts uh, of our, when we talk about education and history um, that we need to emphasize, and I don't think it's been a long time since I've looked at the high school curriculum, but I think that teaching tolerance is what's important, and it's not just and Holocaust education is part of that, and I hope that's included, uh, not just the history of what happened, but why it happened. We look at um, the same thing with the civil rights movement uh, and the civil war and the slavery. So we, we've got to teach tolerance. It's, it's the humanity of the thing. The Native Americans, what, what the early settlers did to our Native American community, the Trail of Tears, um, the treatment of the Navajos, all of that, it's teaching tolerance. And I think that's what um, we have to include in our curriculum, as well as the historical events that lead up to all of those movements, but, but we need to look at it as um, part of humanity, and how do we teach our young people to be empathetic, to be caring of people and good human beings. Thank you. You know, that, that was absolutely perfect because I believe that showing the history, regardless of how good or bad it looks, but it's just what you said, you know, teaching uh, uh, the intolerance, you know, teaching tolerance rather, explaining why a, a culture does things the way that they do it, or, or, or why people might look at certain things a certain way, and you're absolutely right. I, I think uh, beautiful word there, tolerance. I, you know, I, I think we need to teach that, uh, especially now, even more. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you very much for listening to me. I hope I didn't ramble too much. No, no, no. Absolutely wonderful, um, absolutely wonderful. And yeah, I just said, I encourage people to, uh, whatever community they are in, is whatever community they're in to, um, to take part in, um, in programs that work to be, work to make, to be inclusive. And, uh, you know, we've had this very, very difficult year of the pandemic, and I think we've become much more isolated during this year. And as we emerge from this to, um, 
to form a community again and to try to understand people around us and what's motivating them and, and understand um, so that we can become a community again and heal after all the terrible events of the past year, many, many terrible events. Thank you so much, Lily. Uh, your story is inspirational and your message of inclusion is extremely powerful. I, I'm hoping that uh, we will be able to um, put some information out to help other survivors uh, continue to search for their family members. We would like to thank you today for joining us for this edition of Inside the Castle. We appreciate you and your insights. And to our listeners, we want to hear from you. What topics are important to you and people you're interested in hearing from. Until next time, be safe, be innovative, and be revolutionary. To provide your feedback, email us at cw.infrastructure.team at usace.army.mil. Stay tuned for additional Inside the Castle podcasts as we explore life inside the core and revolutionize civil works together.